So today on the church calendar is the Feast of the Holy Name. It is the Sunday during the Christmas season when we remember the day that Jesus was taken to the temple and officially given the name of Jesus. And we're going to explore in our passage from Philippians what it means to have the name of Jesus. And it reminds me just a little bit of Shakespeare and uh, Romeo and Juliet. And there's a scene in the second act where Juliet is talking to Romeo and asking him to, to leave his family. And she utters what have become some fairly recognizable and famous lines. She says, O Romeo, O Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Or, if thou wilt not, but be but sworn, my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Shall I hear more, or shall I speak at this, says Romeo. Juliet responds, Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain the dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo doff thy name, and for that name which is no part of thee, take all myself. And to which Romeo responds, I take thee in my word, and the love story goes on until they're dead. <laughs> but I, I, want, I want to focus in on that question. What is a name? What is in a name? If a rose were called anything else, would it somehow not have its same rose substance? If, if Romeo were not Romeo, would he still be something different than who he is? And so there is this question that Shakespeare is asking as he asks uh, his romantic Romeo to, to step away from his name. Now, it seems like a really hard thing to do, doesn't it? To step away from your name. I mean, how many different titles and labels do we put on ourselves in which we find identity? Uh, I, I'm a husband and a son and a father. I have a degree or two. I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher. You're a teacher or a professor or a parent or a child or a sibling or an engineer or a business person or an attorney or you run some kind of ministry or uh, we, we, we find identity in these things. What must it be like to have all that shed and all that put aside so that you're stripped down to just who you are and what you do and you're no longer defined by those labels? Well, on one hand, it would be a really easy thing to do. What's in a name? Well, Shakespeare's right. And, and on one hand, there's nothing in a name. It's just a label that we stick on something. And yet, Paul tells us here in Philippians that when we're talking about the name of Jesus, it's actually everything. Uh, your name probably isn't worth too much, maybe a little bit. Mine isn't worth very much. Yours might be worth a little bit. But the name of Jesus is worth everything. So what does it look like to set aside our names and our labels? What happens? Well, when we, as we explore this question tonight, what is, uh, what is in a name? I want us to look at two things. First, I want us to look at kingdom humility, and I want us to look at kingdom economy. Kingdom humility and kingdom economy. But I have to put this in its context first, so I want to back up to verse 1 of the chapter. 
Paul says to the Philippians, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to, to the interests of others. And so the context of this passage is one of encouraging unity and humility and self-sacrifice for the body. And then Paul launches in verses 5 through 11 into an explanation of Jesus as the example of this. The language in verse 5 is a little bit complicated. In Greek, in the second half of that verse, there's actually a verb missing. And so they have to figure out what that means, and nobody knows for sure. So the ESV takes verse 5 and says this. It's what's in your bulletin. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Another way it could be said is, let this way of living be true of you as it becomes those who are in Christ Jesus. Whichever way that you take that particular statement, the meaning is still fairly obvious. That Paul is taking the example of Jesus and he says, for those of you who are in Christ, who have been baptized into his death and into his resurrection, there is some power there that you need to live into. You need to step into what is being done for you, what has been done for you. And then he launches into this great Christological passage that talks about the humanity and the deity of Christ. And I have to tell you, I, I, in preparing for this sermon, I went back and looked at John Chrysostom's sermon on this passage. And I was fascinated to find out how, even in John Chrysostom's day, how... Um, how firm the conviction that Jesus was both God and man was set. Chrysostom spends most of his sermon arguing against the Marcionites and arguing for the full divinity and full uh, humanity of Christ in that sermon, all coming out of this passage. And so there's so much in here that we want to unpack. It may take us a little while, but I promise not to be more than an hour. Verse 6. Who... Referring to Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though he was in the form of God, it's the word morphe, a thing that is in the form of something else in Greek thought. If you have something that is the morphe of another thing, it contains within it all of the essence and characteristics of that thing. It isn't just sort of a bad copy. It is that thing in all parts, in all ways. And so what we have here is a statement very quickly about the pre-incarnate Son of God who was in all ways God. He was in all manner, all characteristics, the same God stuff. Whatever that God stuff is, we declare it in the Apostles and the Nicene Creed that he's the same God as God the Father. We don't go much further than that because how would you ever explain what that is? <laughs> but it's the same God stuff. In the pre-incarnate Son of God, he was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God something to be grasped. The pre-existent Son of God, God in all ways, in all form, in all substance, in all things, all characteristics, did not think, because of his position, that grasping at equality was something he needed to worry about. You see, when you own something by right... There's a certain confidence that comes with that. 
You don't need to feel like you have to steal something because it's already yours. And because it's already yours, you're also freer to set it aside. When I was in the second grade, Mrs. Roberts, she was a great teacher, fair and just. Mrs. Roberts was my second grade teacher. And in my class was a little boy named Richie. Richie was always in trouble. One day, Richie stole my apple. And being in the second grade and full of righteousness, I wanted my apple back. Apparently, I dropped it. You know, we sat on those desks that had the opening that's kind of near your stomach, and I was rocking my desk like this, and my apple was in the desk. Because I was in the second grade, and I never sat still. So I'm like doing this with my desk. And my apple rolled out of my desk onto the floor. And Richie picked it up. He sat next to me. And I glanced over and saw my apple in his desk. And this ensued a very heated debate about how that was my apple in his desk, and I wanted it back. But he grabbed onto it and said, it's my apple. It's mine. And our teacher, Mrs. Roberts, heard us squabbling. So she called us up and she said, what's the problem? And I said, Richie stole my apple. And he said, it's mine. It's mine. And she said, look, this was her wisdom of Solomon. She said, I have an apple in the car. Here's the key to my car. Go out to my car. This is in the second grade. She gave us keys to her car and we left the school building. Like this would never happen now. We left the school building with my teacher's keys, went to her car to find this giant red apple sitting in her console. I had a little yellow apple. This was like a big red apple. She brought, she told us to bring it in. We bring the apple in. We set it on her desk. We set the two apples side by side. She says, Richie, pick an apple. And he grabbed the big red one. And I grabbed the little one and said, I'll take mine, thank you very much, <laughs> and went and sat down. And she said, well, that's what I thought. You see, Richie was falling into this trap of when you grasp at something that isn't yours, you have two choices. You can hang on to it forever, or you can set it down. And when you set it down, somebody else is probably going to take it. Because that's what happens when you live in a thieves' world. You steal from someone, and someone else steals from you. Always grasping. But if you actually owned the thing, if the thing uh, is yours by right, uh, there's a certain sense in which you can also choose to let it go. Because you know, at the end of the day, justice will win out and it will be yours. You will get it back. I think there's something in here about Jesus as he... Um, as he does not count equality with God something to be grasped. Verse 7, it says that he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Notice that he did this to himself. It wasn't done to him. He, whatever emptied himself means, he willingly chose to do it. And he took his apple, in this case, this God-likeness, and was willing of his own accord to set it aside. Now, what does that mean to empty himself? Well, the text actually doesn't tell us what it means to empty himself. It just says that he emptied himself. Now, theologians have come to all sorts of conclusions of what this could be. Could be that he emptied himself of his glory. Could be that he emptied himself of his independent exercise of authority. Uh, Calvin thought that he got rid of his insignia of majesty. Not entirely sure what that means. Others have argued that he, he got rid of his omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. Some have argued that he gave up his equality with God. The text doesn't say, but at a minimum, what can be inferred from this text 
is that when he emptied himself, he willingly gave up some sort of authority and lordship to become a servant. He gave up something that was his by right as the pre-incarnate son of God, eternally present with the father. It was his right to rule. And he deliberately and intentionally gave it up and took on the form of a servant. It's that same word, form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so he became a man for you and for me, willingly of his own accord. He did this to sacrifice for us. And when he became man, it isn't that he um, somehow became less in substance or character or quality than God. He was no more less than God than you are less than your employer. Yes, your employer is superior over you. Your employer can give you orders and commands and you have to do what they say. But, he, but your employer is not substantively different or superior to you. You live under an authority. Jesus, when he gave up his authority, placed himself temporarily under the authority of the Father as he became a servant for you and for me. And it strikes me that Jesus must have been supremely confident in the promises that his father had given him. That this suffering, this ordeal as a servant that he was about to go through was going to be temporary, though painful. It was not going to last forever, but he still willingly set aside this authority, this lordship, to be one of us. A certain, there's a certain confidence that comes in knowing that you're going to be okay and it doesn't really matter what people say to you or about you. It doesn't really matter if they mock you. Ulysses S. Grant was once on his way to a reception that was being held in his honor. And as he was walking, it began to rain. And he found a stranger who happened to be walking the same way. And Ulysses S. Grant had an umbrella and he offered to let this man walk under his umbrella with him. And as they're walking, the man says that he was going to Grant's reception out of curiosity. He had never seen the general before. And then the man says... I have always thought that Grant was a much overrated man. To which Grant responds, that's my view also. <laughs> There's something about when you're secure in who you are. And as Christians, when we're secure about who we are as the children, the forgiven and loved children of God, that you can weather a whole, lots of, a whole lot of darts and arrows. Because at the end of the day, there's nothing that anyone can actually do that changes your status before your Father, your Creator, and your Savior. And so Jesus sets aside his authority willingly, confident that there's ultimately nothing that can be done to him that isn't in the command and in the control of the Father, and that he's going to be okay. And so he sets it aside for us. In verse 8, then it says, that being um, in the found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Paul says to his uh, readers in Philippi very clearly that their example to follow, and this is heady stuff, their example to follow is the incarnate Son of God who became man and was obedient even to the point of dying. A selfless act on the behalf of sinners like you and like me. And Paul says to them, this is where this idea of humility can lead you. It can lead you that far. Follow him anyway. 
Because just like Christ, we have certain promises that have been given to us because of his work, that we are secure. And there's nothing we need to grasp or hang on to, because all of it's God's anyway. And we can follow him, and we can trust him. And so that's what kingdom humility looks like. It's a, a willingly giving up authority, that which is ours by right. Whatever respect you've earned, you can give it up. Whatever title you think you deserve, you can let that go. Because at the end of the day, that isn't what's going to actually take you into the presence of God. Luther has said that, that humility is the passageway to meet God. That you don't actually meet him until you're humbly ready to receive him. And that's kingdom humility. But what does this mean then? I mean, we have this like dark news in these first five verses. Jesus, he leaves his authority behind, his lordship behind. He comes to earth. He becomes a servant. He becomes a man. He's taken to the point of death for you and for me. But that isn't the end of the story. Because in the kingdom of God, the economy is different. In the kingdom of God, the one who is last is the one who will be first. And the one who is first is the one who will become last. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Therefore, because of what happened before, God has exalted him and highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. He has been called uh, Lord. Jesus chose the lowly path in order to show love and commitment to humankind, in order that humankind would then surrender willingly to him because they would see that it's for their own good to surrender to this loving and kind God. And then the humble and exalted Jesus is enthroned, raised up, sets at the right hand of God as a token of the future total and final victory. And so we see in the kingdom economy that the last shall be first. This is all over the New Testament. Mark chapter 9, the disciples have asked Jesus who among them would be first. And Jesus answered to them uh, as he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. In Matthew 16, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? We see similar teaching in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This is not about rewards. It would be easy to think that if I act humbly and do humble things, God will then give me rewards. That, that is the wrong way to look at it. It's not about rewards. It's about the laws of the kingdom. The immutable laws of the kingdom. That humility leads to exaltation is as true in the kingdom of God as 2 plus 2 equals 4. It just is. Because the laws of the kingdom of God are reversed and upside down from what we know. And when we come to a place of humbly admitting and acknowledging our need for a Savior, our need for redemption, and living in that truth, bringing ourselves to a place of humility where we're willing to serve God and be obedient, then we find exaltation. Uh, in the divine economy of the kingdom, uh, we give, uh, by giving, we receive. By serving, we are served. By losing our lives, we find our true selves. 
By dying, we are resurrected to life. By humbling ourselves, we are exalted. And the one follows the other just as night follows day. But it's always in this order. Humility and sacrifice first, followed by being exalted by God. The proud cannot enter the kingdom of God because the proud cannot admit that they need a savior. Uh, Only the humble will find God. Only the humble. Now, humility is not the constantly tearing of oneself down. Tearing down of oneself. I got my words all mixed up. It's not constantly tearing yourself down. John Rishkin once said that, I believe the first test of a truly great man is his humility. I do not mean by humility doubt of his own power or hesitation in speaking his opinion, but really great men have a feeling that the greatness is not in them but through them, that they could not do or be anything else than God made them. That's humility. When you come to a place, not when you tear yourself down, but when you realize that whatever you have, you have because God put it there. And you're just the conduit through which he wants to work. And so whatever he wants to do with you, whatever skill he gives you, whatever talent he gives you, whatever income he gives you is not yours. It's his to flow through you to bless others. And the truly humble person knows that he is just a tool in the hand of God. And when you come to that place where you no longer care that you're getting the props that you deserve, that you're getting the attention that you think you deserve or the position you think you deserve or the raise you think you deserve, when you actually come to a place where you realize that everything you have is God's anyway, that's when he's ready to use you. And that's when something powerful is going to happen in your life. And so the one who is, the one who is humble is the one who finds God. And why? And where does this happen? It says... Um, Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The final little section of this hymn, this ancient, ancient hymn, that Jesus is exalted and given a name above every other name. The question, what is in a name? Not much in my name, not much in your name but rule and authority over the entire creation and cosmos is bound up in the name of Jesus. Everything is bound up in his name. Everything you need to know about what God wants for us in our lives, everything we need to know about where he wants us to go, everything we need to know about what he is going to do in this universe is bound up in the name and activity of Jesus Christ. So that every, at the name of Jesus, eventually a fulfilled eschatology in, in verse 10, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Heaven, earth, under the earth. It's, it's a, Paul's way of using sort of a Greek cosmology to explain that Everything in creation will ultimately be submitted to Jesus Christ. The heavens, the earth, and Hades under the earth. Everything will submit to him. And every tongue shall confess. Every tongue shall openly acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now I don't know exactly how all that's going to play out. Clearly, there are some people who are going to find themselves outside of the kingdom of God because they've rejected Christ. But when I read this, what I see it to be saying is that every tongue will openly acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, whether or not they're following him or not. The evidence will be irrefutable. 
It will, become, it will become so obvious that every created thing must acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so Jesus knows something, too, about his servanthood. He knows something about um, the economy of the kingdom. He knows that when he, when he allows himself to become a servant, when he allows himself to be humiliated, even to the point of death, that that humility will lead to his exaltation. It will lead to him being more than he, than he ever was before, lifted up because of the power of God, and that everything he has, everything he is, will be because of what God is doing in him. And this is the example that Paul tells us to follow. And so I want to close with just a couple of concluding thoughts. Luther says when he reviews this passage, he preaches a sermon, he says that, that Jesus serves us with his goods, that we in poverty might become rich. Jesus is the example of what it means to take everything you have and set it aside for the good of someone else. And that someone else was you. Impoverished, poor, broken, sinful, lost, scared, in need of a benefactor. Jesus said, I'm going to be that benefactor. I'm going to leave everything that, I, that is mine by right. And I'm going to give it up to come down here and be one of these lowly creatures that we call mankind. And I'm going to die for them. And God's going to lift me up and I'm going to bring all of them with me. And so Paul's call to the Philippians is to live out the reality that is already present in them. Step into it. Become the kind of people that Jesus is working in us to be because he has done a great and mighty work in us. So what is it in a name of Jesus? What is in the name in the name of Jesus' salvation, in the name of Jesus' glory and authority and love and power and security and all the things that a desperate and dark world need. And it's why at Christmas we celebrate the light coming into the world. And so I encourage you not to be the child who grasps onto things because you think you have to hang on to them because somehow they're yours, but simply let it go. And trust that God is at work in your life. And he's made you promises he's going to keep. And he isn't going to leave you alone. And that humility is the pathway to God.